Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. If you are unconvinced that a particular plan of action I've decided is the wisest, tell me so. But allow me to convince you, and I promise you right here and now, no subject will ever be taboo, except for the subject that was just under discussion. The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. Just like this fucker here. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Quentin Tarantino's fourth film, Kill Bill, Volume 1. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the House of the Blue Leaves, my name is Don. And to my right, we have the comic book guy, John. Hey. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. The hard part's over. Let's get these other pigglies wiggling. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing great. Yeah? Feeling good. Good, good, good. Tonight we are talking about Kill Bill, Volume 1, and it was my turn to pick the movie, and so I am going to go ahead and ask myself, hey, self, why Kill Bill? Well, thanks for asking. That's a good question. The reason why I picked Kill Bill is because we haven't talked about Quentin Tarantino in a while, and we had a lot of fun with Pulp Fiction, so I thought Kill Bill's in my top three, so let's give this a shot. Well, I figured it was because last week's movie was The Last Dragon, and the martial arts expertise in that movie inspired you to go for the next best martial arts movie, which was Kill Bill. You know what? I'm going to say subconsciously, that was it. It's got to be, right? Released on October 10th, 2003, Kill Bill Volume 1 was directed by Quentin Tarantino. It was written by Quentin Tarantino, and it stars... Uma Thurman, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, David Carradine, Sonny Chiba, Julie Dreyfus, Gordon Liu, Michael Parks, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $30 million and it brought in $181 million. So not too bad. Not bad at all. Quinton's movies don't necessarily light up the box office. He's never been a, a huge box office uh, moneymaker. True, true. But his films, I find, uh, they last, right? I think they they make their money in time. Yeah, o- over time. And certainly uh, the uh, the worldwide, that's where he makes his money. Yeah. Uh, th- this didn't necessarily make a lot of money. It only made like $69 million in America during the box office. And it was only in the top 10 for four weeks. Yeah. Uh, October, so what mm-hmm. else came out in 2003? Finding Dory. Uh, there was another Pirates movie. Oh, <laughs> of course there was. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. How did this movie do compared to his other movies? This one was probably kind of sort of in the middle. The most successful uh, box office was Django Unchained, 
and that one did 175 million. Now I know Quentin Tarantino said in the past he was only going to make a certain amount of movies that he was going to be the director of. Ten. Ten movies. Was he? Isn't he on like nine now or something? Um, he, technically yes, but I think I heard, and we may have even discussed this in Pulp Fiction. Um, but I think he considers Volume One and Two one movie. Okay, that's correct. Yeah, so I think it's at eight or nine. And uh, he was in talks to do the a new Star Trek. That wouldn't have counted because that wasn't from his brainchild. He also said that he would go beyond 10, as you were saying, for possibly doing a Star Trek. Yeah. And there are rumors and rumblings around. I don't know how true they are that Volume 3 will come out eventually. Vivica A. Fox's daughter. I think Nakia was Nakia, yeah, is going to come looking for the bride. Mm-hmm. So, But who knows? We'll see. And if that happens, who are you rooting for? Well, the- if technically, the roles are reversed. I mean... She did kill. That's not what I asked you. Who am I rooting for? I, I, I'd have to see the movie. I honestly don't know. I'm still pulling for the bride. I think part of me is too. <laughs> yeah. I think part of me is too. So, I mean, sorry, Nokia, but. Well, she's such a likable character in the movies. Did you guys see this in the theater? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Do you remember what you thought uh, after the first time you saw it? Fucking loved it. I think I was already talking about getting my tickets to see it again. That's funny that you say that because I didn't see it in the theater initially. Uh, back in 2003 when it came out, uh, my buddy bootlegged it for me and he gave it to me and it was like the Thursday or the Wednesday before it was released on Friday, right? So I watched it and it was one of those rare instances that as soon as it was over, I pressed play again right away and I watched it back to back. I fucking fell in love with volume one. For sure. And just the way it was paced, the introduction, the dialogue, the soundtrack. The it was style. just the style. It was so much fun. Speaking of fetishes, shall we talk about the Tarantino's fetish? His foot fetish that we talked about in Pulp Fiction? Yeah, yeah. let's go over it again. Well, I wanted to bring it up in that I looked up uh, what movies of his have had the most focus on bare feet. Because as people know... Quentin Tarantino likes to put bare feet in all of his movies. And actually, uh, for the movies that have had bare feet like emphasized for actually the focusing on the feet and making it a part of the story, Kill Bill Volume 1 has the most time out of all the movies. Now, the movie that has the most bare feet in it was actually Jackie Brown. Have you seen that movie? Have I seen Jackie, Jackie Brown? Brown? Jackie Brown is my favorite Quentin Tarantino oh, movie. I have not seen that yet. So we need to have, have someone submit that one. Have <laughs> you ever looked up why he has this fetish for feet? No. Do you want to know why I never looked it up? Because you don't want to know? No, because I don't care. That's where I'm at, too. I don't care. I heard an interview, and he could just be saying this, but he said that he is so over the beauty standard in Hollywood that, you know, they always focus on you know, the beauty of the faces and get these beautiful actresses and everything always has to be absolutely perfect that he decided instead of focusing on that, he wanted to focus on feet in his movies. And that kind of feels like a Quentin Tarantino thing to do. He's always been uh, eccentric. Is that the right word? Potentially. Um, 
So yeah, I, I buy that. Yeah. I buy that. And plus, he fucking likes feet, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know? So let's talk about this cast a little bit. Uh, Uma Thurman as the bride. Apparently, Quentin and Emma were really good friends because of Pulp Fiction, and they were sitting around one day, and they just started talking about the bride as a character, and then they came up. Um, well, this actually comes from a French film, the basic plot of it, but uh, it's called The Woman in Black or something. So. Yeah, it's a, about a bride whose husband gets shot on their wedding day, and she hunts down these five guys. But anyways, uh, Quentin and Uma are talking about it. And they come up with the character of the bride, and that's what spawned this idea for this uh, revenge flick. I guess uh, if you watch for it, like the House of the Blue Leaves, and then also in the credits, it has the letters Q and U. Uh, like in the House of the uh, Blue Leaves, it's on the wall. In the end credits, it says the bride inspired by or created by Q and U, which stands for Quentin and Uma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saw that right away. But what did you guys think of her as the bride? I thought she was fantastic. She she played this to a T, and I thought it's probably one of her strongest roles. You know, typically I am not an Uma fan, but for some reason I've loved her in every uh, Quentin Tarantino movie she's been in. Yeah. Outside of Quentin Tarantino movies, I'm just not a fan of hers. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I was delighted by uh, her performance in this, and I would say I think it's probably my favorite performance or my favorite character that she has played mm -hmm. uh, is the bride uh, because she's even better in volume two, I think. But volume two is more of a Quentin movie. And <laughs> what? We'll talk about that in a bit. So, yeah, I was a big fan of Uma Thurman for sure. Well, I think it also helps that Quentin had nobody else in mind to play this, right? So the entire time that he's writing this, he has Uma in his head. This movie also led to a little bit of a falling out between the two of them that I don't know how long it lasted, but did you hear that whole story? Yeah, so they're filming, and uh, it's, a, it's, a small, it's a small set, and Quentin doesn't bring any stunt people on set. And it's for volume, they're actually filming uh, a scene where Uma's driving down the dirt road for volume two, and she loses control and she hits a fucking tree. Yeah, she did not want to do it. She wanted a stunt driver, and he basically talked her into it. Yeah, using his friendship and, you know. At the time, I mean, 2002, 2003, uh, fuck nuts ahead of Miramax, right? And I'm sure... Uh, there was a lot of pressure coming down on Quentin too, and and the, and that time I'm sure they were like, oh, just she'll be fine, just just uh, smooth it over, just you know, blah blah blah. But like you were saying, it did cause a problem between Quentin and Uma, and it wasn't until I don't know, a couple at least five years later that they uh, finally reconciled. Yeah, she busted her knees pretty bad to the point where I think they still she still has issues with her knees. Yeah. What did you guys think of the casting of Bill? David Carradine. Uh, I thought it was good. Uh, he hadn't done a lot up at that time, and so it was kind of like his comeback. Again, Quentin's bringing older actors or actors that haven't had done a lot, bringing them back into the limelight. Uh, I thought he was good. Uh, I heard that they wanted Warren Beatty to play Bill, but uh, Warren didn't do it. Yeah, if they had had Warren Beatty, they said he, they would have made the character more of a James Bond spy type character. Yeah, I can see that because he didn't want to train. 
Mm-mm. You didn't want to do any of the martial arts stuff. Not that Carradine did a lot of martial arts in the movie. I heard he was also a little bit against all the violence. That doesn't surprise me. Warren Beatty was an odd duck. Mm-hmm. So, I think maybe also he, I I think Quentin liked the idea that Carradine also was, you know, the Kung Fu television show. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the one thing I really, not just the one thing, but one of the things I really enjoy about this is the, you know, how Tarantino pays homage to so many different movies and styles in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very evident. But he blends them so seamlessly that it's just one hell of a ride. So much fun. So stylish. Yes. One of the other characters that I really appreciated in this movie was the comeback of Daryl Hannah. Oh, yeah. We hadn't seen her in a lot of things up until this movie. And I thought she was great in this movie. She is great in this movie. And I was a little disappointed that we didn't get her in this movie. Mm-hmm. We got her introduction. We got a tease. Mm-hmm. We got yeah. a tease. And if and when we ever talk about volume two. Which we will. She's so much better in volume two. You know what I mean? It, and it's. And they. Did they film these back to back? I feel like they did. Well, so what happened? It was deep into the production, and Harvey Weinstein really thought that this needs to be pulled apart. And so it was originally going to be one movie, but they were deep into it, and it was the decision was made to turn it into two. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think uh, at one point they did release it as one to select few. There are only a couple of prints of it, and I think it comes in at two hundred and fifty minutes. Oh, it was like a 250-page script as right. well. Yeah. I would so have loved to see that version. It's called Kill Bill, The Whole Bloody Affair. Sonny Chiba. I really liked his role in this movie. Oh, I loved Master Hanzo. I know. He just Something about him was just great. Was, in was, he was very fatherly, and you could tell. He was almost like our Yoda. Yeah, but his, you know what I mean? his expressions on his face, like when she's saying, you know, I've got big rats to kill. No, vermin. Big vermin to kill. And just that his face changes. I just thought he did a fantastic job. I agree. I agree. Very delightful. Um, and then rounding out the Fox Force 5, I mean the Deadly Viper Squad, uh, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, and Michael Madsen. What did you guys think of those three? Well, we certainly get very little of Bud. Right. But, but the other two, yeah. Absolutely. You buy it, right? Totally. I totally do. Even the little bit of we got of Bud, him delivering that line at the end, I thought he did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. And he's really, really good in volume two mm-hmm. as well. So um, Vivica A, I bought it. She's beautiful, strong. She fits the part. And um, we'll get into it, but I like I love the fight between her and Uma. And then Lucy Liu, I'm always a fan. You know, and, I, and for the character that she plays, the head of the all of the Akuzas, I thought was just absolutely wonderful as well. So, what did you think of the actress that played Gogo? Oh, she was great. I uh, thought she was fun. She was very uh, creative. I thought the whole thing, even the crazy eighty eights. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was all so much fun. What did you guys think of the soundtrack? The music no, was awesome. Yeah, I remember this movie. Uh, as one of the things that turned me on to different types of music. You know, before that, I was just into pop, 80s, you know, hip-hop, things like that. And this put me into, now I like a little bit more of the guitar music, a little bit more of foreign language song you know, music, things like that. I, it really broadened me is what I'm trying to say. Nice. Yeah, very nice, very nice. What about you? It was a soundtrack, so I love soundtracks, you know, just because of who I am. Um, I really dug it. I felt that the music really moves us along, and it's... Quentin, along with James Gunn, I think are the masters of the needle drop. 
I think that the music in most of Quentin Tarantino's movies uh, really accentuate it. And this is no different. So diverse, too. Yes. Yes. Did you have a favorite needle drop in this one? Um, I don't know if it's a needle drop. But or just I, any of the music, anything off the soundtrack. Yeah, my favorite song probably is the Battle for Humanities. Humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one where Owen Oren is walking in. And Battle without honor or humanity. Thank you, sir. That one. That one's my favorite. Totally. Mine, too. Yeah. It's such a such a good beat. And walking in, they look so badass. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's a little bit of a tie between Bang Bang by Nancy Sinatra or Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood for the fight scene between the bride and Oren. Ah, two good solid choices as well. Did this win, or was it nominated for any awards? Yeah, well, I know it was nominated for t- cinematography. Wait, no, but it wasn't nominated for cinematography. I forgot about that. But Richard Richardson, he's the cinematographer on a lot of the movies, this movie included. And he's been nominated uh, for four Quentin Tarantino movies. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and Inglorious Bastards. And he's won three Academy Awards uh, there was JFK, The Aviator, and Hugo. So this guy knows his shit, and he really shines in this movie. I sure wish Uma would have been, been noticed more because I thought her character had a real arc. She showed a lot of different character. You know, uh, her her healing, her grief, when she realizes she, she doesn't have her baby anymore. Yeah, when she wakes up in that hospital bed, really hit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she's getting herself into the truck and she, you know, she has the tear, you know, the tears coming down, trying to get herself into the truck. Uh, when she's talking to Hanzo in the restaurant, I really think that she has a real range that was overlooked and was deserving of an, of an Oscar nod. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Do you know what time it is? What time is it, John? I believe it would be trivia time. In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before throwing out your answer. What is the code name of Uman Thurman's character in the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad? Black Black Mama. Mama. I'm going to give you guys a tie on that. I think this is going to be a close one. Lucky us, Professor. We got a tie. What is the code name of Oren Ishii? Copperhead. Copper mouth. You're both wrong. It's cotton mouth. Cotton mouth. What is the name of the sword that Uma Thurman's character uses throughout the movie? And a Hattori Hanzo sword? That's the answer. What was the name of the restaurant where the infamous Crazy 88 fight scene took place? Uh, House of Blue Leaves. That is correct, sir. What is the name of the song that plays during the opening credits of Kill Bill Volume 1? I don't know. Bang, bang. My Baby Shot Me Down by Nancy Sinatra, so you are correct. What is the name of the character played by Vivica A. Fox in Kill Bill Volume 1? Bernita Green. Green. Which character from the movie is seen in the background on a Red Apple cigarette ad at an airport? Sophie Fatal. She Absolutely, and that's one of the... Uh, uh, things that uh, Quentin Tarantino puts in all of his movies, uh, red apple cigarettes. Who is the owner of the House of Blue Leaves compared to by his outfit? Charlie Brown. There you go. Char- Charlie Brown, son! In what kill order 
is the bride's death list five. Oren, Vernita, Bud. No, Bud's fourth. Ellie and it's Bill. Ellie, Bud, and then Bill. Actually, you were correct. I actually looked at it a few times. It's Oren, Vanita Green, Bud, Ellie, Bill. Because when she's writing it, the names get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. And it's Ellie and Bill that, that I know. Oh, right. Because she has that descriptor for Ellie. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would have thought that because the way they go in the movie, the way you it, would think that Bud was third. Mm-hmm. Right. Are you ready for the final Fine. question? Oh, well, maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we won't. All right. Hit us. How many of the deadly Viper assassin squad were killed by the bride's Hattori uh, Hanzo sword? One. Two, one. Yeah, it's uh, Oren. Oren is the only one. She fought them and what, with the sword. I know. You said yeah, killed. Oren's the only one that was killed by the sword. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So according to my stats, uh, I believe it was pretty much even this round. So you guys are still stuck at a tie. Wow. What's I, for one. And you know what? That's the equivalent of being in a fucking coma for four years. In 1999, a pregnant woman in a wedding dress, the bride, lies wounded in a chapel in El Paso, Texas. She tells her attacker, Bill, that the baby is his just as he shoots her in the head. Years later, the bride, having survived the attack, goes to the home of Vernita Green, planning to kill her. Both women were members of the Deadly Vipers, a now disbanded group of assassins led by Bill. Vernita now leads a normal suburban life. The women engage in a knife fight, which is interrupted for the benefit of Vernita's young daughter, Nikki, just before she arrives home from school. The bride agrees to meet Vernita at night to settle the matter, but when Vernita tries to shoot the bride with a pistol hidden in a box of cereal, the bride throws a knife into Vernita's chest, killing her. After the bride pulls the knife out of Vernita's chest, Nikki sees her mother's lifeless body. The bride expresses regret as what Nikki has seen, but insists that Vernita deserved it. She offers Nikki a chance to avenge her mother's death when she grows up, should she choose to do so. All right, so this movie opens with some heavy breathing, and we well, are... even before that, that 70s, you know, retro One thing I love, too, again, paying homage... Our feature presentation. I love the record pops. Yes! Sounds like he's playing just a, you know, a record. Yeah, yeah. And then so re- good. And then right after that, revenge is a dish that is best served cold. Which is a Klingon proverb. proverb. Kind of kind of funky to throw that in there, but I get it. He's a fucking Trekkie. And, you know, maybe God willing, one day, one day we'll get a Quentin Tarantino directed Star Trek movie. I can't even imagine what that, that's going to be. Like. I don't even want to try at this moment. But yeah, so we start off and uh, we get the heavy breathing and we open up on Uma's face. A tight shot. She's beat, beat, beat to shit. Yeah. And then we hear... And then eventually we see Bill's handkerchief comes in. Mm-hmm. Wipes up the blood as he's talking to her. Uh, what did you guys think of this whole opening bit up until the gunshot? Did you kind of, is this something that you would have expected from Quentin? Did you guys kind of know what we were getting into when you went into it? Um, what did you guys think? I did not expect, since knowing that Uma Thurman's the star of the movie, uh, you know, I had no idea where the movie was going to go for her to be shot in the first five seconds of the movie. 
Oh, I totally got it because it's in black and white and black and white means that it's in the past. And as soon as she's shot, it's like, well, clearly that's not the end of the movie. And this might be the end of the story, but for now, I know it's not the end of the movie and it's just a flashback. So we, we start at the end is how I took it. And it, it definitely starts out with a bang and it, it grabs you right away. Cause as soon as the gun fires, we cut to black and then we start on the credits. One of the things that kind of threw me off is uh, Quentin Tarantino tends to do some of his movies out of order. We saw that a lot in Pulp Fiction. And I thought, when I first saw this scene, are we seeing the very end of the movie? Is this what's going to happen to the bride at the end of the movie that basically she's going to lose or she's going to get shot? It didn't click on me right away that that was a flashback. Right. And in, in chronological terms, it's actually the beginning, mm-hmm. right? It's like halfway through the beginning. The credits happen, and then it gives uh, all the... Guest starring Sonny Chiba. Right, and then directed by, and uh, based on, and then it says, uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, fades to black, and Mm -hmm. then it says chapter one, number two with the circle, and then we open on Uma pulling up to Vernita's house. So, Something I don't know, and I'm curious if you guys have any understanding, what was the reason why he did not reveal her name in the movie until part two? I have no idea. I just I don't I don't either. I figured it was a Quentin Cork. I didn't know if it was again paying homage to maybe a past movie. Uh, listeners, if any of you know, please respond in the comments with a, a reason because I'm just really curious what that style, what what that was purposed for. You know, I could uh, venture a guess that maybe it's something to the ilk of you have Clint Eastwood's cowboy characters, man with no name. Maybe, and he's definitely paying homage to uh, Sierra Gileone, yeah, to his films in this as well, the I spaghetti thought, westerns. I thought maybe it's because, at least in this first movie, I know it's kind of, you know, in the, both movies, but in this movie, she is just a vengeful bride. That's how she's being portrayed, and so that's who she is, the bride. Yeah, maybe. And I got to say, I enjoyed how quickly this opens up. We pull up to this picturesque-looking house. In the pussy wagon. Which we don't know yet, and we don't know that until Green is dead. He just he just wanted to say pussy, but go on. And she gets out, walks across the grass, and then a close-up of the doorbell as she rings it, and then it's her face, and then the door opens up, and then we get the... sudden bam cold coxer so yeah and they start fighting and there's no music right all you hear are the sounds of the the fighters and vernita's throwing her into glass and um and when they're in when they instantly start fighting they are fighting with skills they are both adept fighters that we can tell right off the bat they both know what they're doing oh yes i agree and i i also appreciate first of all the fact that it's such a suburban environment kind of background, you wouldn't expect this fight to be kind of happening in this environment. But I appreciate, you notice how they both kind of fought with honor. You know, she didn't have a sword out. She didn't have a gun out right away. She was fighting her, you know, you know, mano a mano with just her fists in the beginning. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the fighting also takes place in what I appreciate in some James Bond movies. You just use whatever's close by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, survival of the fittest. And these two are trained assassins and they're going at it. And, and they, they finally crash the room and they finally get some blades and they're really going to go at it. Well, 
Only one of them gets a blade. The other gets a frying pan. Hey, you know, puller pawn. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the school bus arrives. And I love the framing of that, too, because you have the living room window and frame left, you have green frame right. You have the bride. And just inside her is the pussy wagon. We can't see the name yet, but the whole left frame of the window frame is empty only to have the school bus pull up. And you hear the school bus mm-hmm. just like you would if you were at home, right? Yeah. And then you we, hear school children getting, you know, we, we you cut, know. we cut one to, person gets out of the bus. We cut to the bride. And then we cut back to Vernita, and the look on Vernita's face says it all. She, you can tell that's my daughter coming off the bus. Can we not really do this right now? And they hold it to the last possible second, because as soon as the door opens, both the knives and the frying pans go behind their back, and everything, they're just kind of chill. What I also appreciated about this scene is, you know, again, Quentin Tarantino does things out of order, but... You immediately, I, it, it's understandable why this was one of the first scenes because it tells you who the bride is. The fact that she's not going to continue the fight in front of her daughter. She's going to stop and they'll figure out another way. I mean, she's not going to take the easy route. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and she instantly follows right behind Green. Hey, baby, how was school? And then she's cordial and polite right behind Green after that. Uh, what oh. a pretty name for such a pretty girl. I love how they blame it on the dog. <laughs> you know, he got, he was, he's acting a damn fool. <laughs> it's so good. Nikki, uh, go to your room. Right. And then this is where they say, this is mommy's co- friend Beatrix, but they blurp it out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, first of all, she says I'm, and then, and then when she's, she says her name, it's bleeped out. Right. Yeah. And also where, uh, the bride asks Nikki her age. And Nikki doesn't answer, and Vernita's like, don't be rude. And then I love that overhead shot we get of them going out to the kitchen. So cool. And as this is happening, we get introduced to who Vernita Green is. We get Uma's voiceover telling us this little homemaker's name is Vernita Green, or whatever her name is yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. used to be, blah, blah, blah. She's married so to Dr. Good. Bill. Yeah, so good. So good. And then we very quickly get caught up as she catches the bride up on what she's been up to. Right. And she says, uh, and I love the dialogue. I suppose sorry is a little too late, right? You suppose, right. And then the whole, if we were to be even, even even Steven, Steven, Mm -hmm. I'd have to kill you. I'd have to go up to Nikki's room and kill her. And I'd have to wait for the good doctor to come come home home and and kill kill him. him. Then we might be square. So good. It's such a it's such a good dialogue. Yeah, and the whole square callback to Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you got that. I'm glad you caught yeah. that. We're training him, bud. We're mm-hmm. training him. Uh, so they uh, kind of have some coffee, and then... Let's meet later. It almost yep. seems like they're going to be civil about this. I no, I well, they are being civil, but they are definitely... I mean, there's... I love what uh, the bride says. That depends. When do you want to die? Did you know you, what I mean? Did you at any point during this think that maybe the bride was going to let her off because she had a kid? Not no. once. Not Mm-mm. once? Not even a little bit. Mm-mm. No way. Uh, so this this always kind of was in a question, and, and I'm assuming it's normal because people eat cereal all the time at any time of the day. But the way Vernita made it sound was, let's put this shit on hold. I got to get Nakia's cereal, which made, made me think of breakfast. 
And then I started thinking, but she just got off the fucking school bus, right? But, you know. I'm just wondering, what kind of stuff do they put in some of these boxes today? Well, did you catch the name of the box? Kaboom. And, of course, kaboom, there's a gun in it, and the bride takes care of business. Such a wonderful shot, too. She drops the glass. She kicks it. Distracts. Oh, so good. I was going to say, uh, one of the things I noticed when she was grabbing the cereal box, it was on the very top shelf high up where uh, Nakia could not grab it. Yeah. yeah so that would kind of explain where she might have hidden the gun or hidden a weapon. Yeah, absolutely. I also briefly flashed to Nikki sitting at a bowl in, at the table and the cereal starts to come out and then the handgun tumbles into the bowl. <laughs> Look what I clunk, found. Clunk. <laughs> and so... Uh, the bride goes on and throws her knife. And then as she gets the knife out, and then all of a sudden there's Nikki in the doorframe. And it's such a great reveal shot of Nikki standing in the back watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, What I really appreciate that, and I wish more directors did this in this movies, is whether or not we get a Kill Bill Volume 3 or not, Quentin Tarantino at least put in the thought of, I'm going to put something in this movie to set up for a future movie. I don't think that's why he put it in there. I don't think that's why he put it in there at all either. I thought it was actually on purpose of, I may use it, I may not use it, but it's there. No, I, I took it as the bride. She knows what she just did because she is where Nikki was more or less. Exactly. You, and you, it's took such every, a, you took everything from me. And if you want to get even, and it that, was su- that's your right. And it was such a, a recognition of the moment. And the bride is honorable. Mm-hmm. And she's not going to kill a child. You know what I mean? But she says, if you still feel raw about this, I'll be waiting. You know, but I've, but let me tell you, your mother had it coming. <laughs> and I think about, man, she's going to be saying all this stuff to her dad later on. And then she said. Yeah. I was thinking about the psychiatrist she's telling it to. I have to say, I was struck as well that Quentin chose the route of no remorse, no tears, you know, no bawling. You know, she, she's just stoic. She's probably in shock, but still, I, I, was, I was struck by that. And then she heads out. We see her little list, uh, chapter two, or chapter one, two. Okay, there's the, okay, there you go, and there's the list. And Oren's already crossed off. And Oren's already crossed off. And then the van pulls away. What the hell is she doing driving a truck called Pussy Wagon? And then when I saw that for the first time, I had to laugh and I still kind of laugh because it's fucking Quentin, right? It's yeah. the pussy wagon. Yeah. And he still has that, by the way. It's parked in his driveway. Yeah, He doesn't drop the kids off at school in it, though, because he says it's not the car for the moment. Chapter 2, The Blood-Splattered Bride. Years earlier, the cops investigate the massacre at the wedding chapel. The sheriff discovers that the bride is alive but comatose. In the hospital, deadly viper Ellie Driver prepares to assassinate the bride via lethal injection, but Bill aborts the mission at the last moment. Although Ellie strongly disagrees, Bill considers it dishonorable to kill the defenseless bride. Awakening from her coma, the bride is horrified to find that she is no longer pregnant. She first kills a man who intends to rape her while she is unconscious, then a hospital worker who has raped her and has been selling her body while she was comatose. She takes the hospital worker's truck and teaches herself to walk again. 
resolving to kill Bill and the other deadly vipers. The bride picks her first target, Oren Ishii, now the leader of the Tokyo Yakuza. One thing I thought was interesting was we keep hearing about the deadly viper assassin squad, um, which I guess uh, is referred to by the bride as the deadly international viper assassin squad, which I never realized was short for divas. Oh, neither did I. Neither, so, did, neither did I. So I wonder if that was kind of an on purpose since it's an all female. No, it's not. Assassin squad. Call them divas. It's not all divas. It's not all female. Well, except for Bud, but he's pretty too. So after she leaves Renita's, we cut to... Four years and six months earlier in El Paso, Texas. And we get the introduction of Sheriff McGraw driving down the street. Yeah, I love that overhead shot that we first get. And then, yeah, we get the introduction of the sheriff and his four... Pairs of sunglasses on the dash? Yeah. Sunglasses on the dash. What the hell? And so uh, Sheriff Earl McGraw, which is the same character from, from Dust Till Dawn, and the same actor, Michael Parks, pulls up and they go inside. And the the deputy that meets him, who plays his son, is actually Michael Parks' son. So that was a real father and son pair. One thing I thought was kind of cool was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we get a scene of when we're looking at the bride? It's kind of, I think, got a greenish tinge, even though it's black and white. It's kind of a weird tinge to it. But when he takes off his sunglasses, we're now looking without the sunglasses color. Yeah, yeah. so they, they walk in and they look at everybody and then they look down at the bride and Quentin makes it a point as he's shooting it up to, to show Michael Parks' face and his glasses and he makes it a point to put a green tinge in there to make it to make you know that it's the green sunglasses. And then when they cut to the bride, it's through his POV that it's green. And that's a, uh, he, uh, Quentin does this a couple times throughout this film is that uh, the transition is uh, with the use of color. Mm -hmm. And so when Michael Parks lifts up his glasses and everything turns to color. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they start talking about the bride and trying to piece this mystery together because it looks like it was a hit squad and they even killed the poor guy who played the organ, the preacher, his wife, the wedding party, everybody. And uh, it turns out it was not dead. And then we cut to four years later, right? Well, well, it, it transitions to her hospital face. So we're looking at a close-up of her face on the floor, and that transitions that to her hospital or face. Yeah, that was a little bit later. And now we get introduced to L Driver. With the whistle. And she's coming in, and she is changing into her nurse's outfit because she is going to go kill the bride. What uh, song is tune is she whistling? I don't know the name of it. I guess it's called Twisted Nerve. Mm-hmm. I dig the uh, the left frame. We get Uma just lying unconscious in the bed, and then in the right frame you have Elle preparing, and you're thinking, "Oh shit, how's she gonna get out of this? She's lying comatose in the bed." And so you have uh, Uma on the left frame, and you have Elle on the right frame, and Elle's walking. She's already changed. The song gets really ominous and creepy, and then, and then, we- then she turns to face the bride looking through the window. The screen expands. And it's such a nice transition. Elle's outfit. Did it not look like something out of like a fantasy nurse's costume? Especially with the, the fact that she even had the accessory of the eye patch with a little nurse's cross on it. Yeah. yeah. And it I does. was just thinking that, yeah, maybe the nurse's costume might kind of be overlooked by anybody who's like looking down the hallway, anything like that. 
But just the eye patch, too, I think would have made her stand out a little bit. Schmaltzy. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I got a little uh, Naughty Nurse vibe from from, from that. But uh, And you this could be the middle of the night, so nobody could be there. Yeah. Well, it is at night. You know, well, I know it's at night, but yeah. it could be 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. We don't know. You know what I mean? There was, a, there was another nice shot where it's nice and tight, where you have the bride's half of her face taking up the left frame, and then we have Elle's half of her face with the eye patch taking up the right frame. Yeah, yeah, very well shot and well cut together. This was edited by Sally Minky, uh, Quentin's longtime editor who passed away not too long ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, she she's masterful at what she does. Absolutely, and Quentin always said that uh, she was his other brain, or she was the other half of his brain, and yeah. You could tell. It was so nice. So nice. I did like uh, Ellie's kind of opening line when she's talking to the bride and saying that, you know, while I may not have ever liked you, I did respect you. Right. And I just thought that was a whole key thing about those two characters. They push the honor thing a lot here. Mm -hmm. You know, honor is, they say there's no honor amongst thieves, but I mean, they all seem pretty honorable, I guess, if, if that's a thing. You know what I mean? With criminals. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right. And so Ellie's getting ready to inject her to lethally kill her. Last possible second. Last possible second. The phone rings and we hear Bill. And he says, you know, I was thinking about it. And we owe this woman better than that. And then Elle disagrees with him. I like when he's talking to her and we're hearing Bill's voice that we hear Ellie on the you know other line. You can kind of hear cussing and swearing and getting all pissed off about it. Yeah. Oh, you don't owe her shit. And uh, he says, uh, a, a lot of things we may be, but what we will not do is sneak into her room like a couple of dogs and kill her in the middle of the night. Now, we, be- we beat the hell out of that woman. And if she ever wakes up, We'll do it again, is what he's saying. And so uh, the the line that Ellie gives Uma, you know, you thought that was pretty fucking funny, didn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's allowed to live. Ellie leaves, and then it says four, four years, years later. later. Okay. Yeah. So she wakes up, and then... She wakes up at the moment of her flashback where she's shot by Bill. Right. She plays this scene perfectly. She finds the plate in her head. I love that bit. The look on her face is when she's no, no, yeah. And then uh, she reads her own. Yeah, she looks at her, uh, immediately goes to her stomach because she remembers that she was pregnant. And then that just primal scream. Violent morning. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then she looks at her hands and she reads her own palms. And she figures out that she's been in a coma for four years. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was trying to look up, you know, how did she know exactly that she'd been in a coma for four years? And I guess the reasoning is she could tell from the the atrophy in her muscles in her hands of how she could move them and how to feel that she knew her body well enough to know that that would have been four years. Yeah, yeah, because she says it. She says four years, and I just believed it. I just believed that she knew what she was doing. And then after volume two, I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes so much more sense. Master Pi May, right? But we jump ahead. So she wakes up, and then she hears that people are coming. She hears whistling. And so she has to, she plops back down, and then she has to slow her heart rate down, right? Because she's still supposed to be in a coma. Um, and then Buck and the Adam Sandler favorite character yeah. dude walks in. and uh, That whole thing was creepy as hell. 
but probably not unrealistic. I know. There I, are some sick, sick fuckers in this world. I and, agree. you know, Quentin came up with it from somewhere. Yeah, that and just the whole right before Buck leaves, throwing him the Vaseline. Vaseline. And, and the fact that he goes, rule number one, absolutely no punching. It's like, this has been going on for a while. Yeah. If Rule number two, it, no well, hickeys, no monkey bites, no blah, blah, blah. In fact, no physical bruises at, of any kind. Yeah, the reason for number one is because she's a spitter. Yeah, you well. You can't punch her if she spits on you. Well, well. And so uh, Buck leaves, and the dude, <laughs> I love his he, the, his commentary to himself is so funny. He has the same laugh in every movie. Her, yeah. her, her. Yeah, so the camera wipes away for, after the guy gets on the bed. And you hear the scream, and we go right back, and... And the bride has his bottom lip. Which means he is fucked. And then, all of a sudden, he is on the floor, and oh my God, she like ripped his throat apart. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Buck comes back. You know, she's searching the body. She finds his knife. Right. And, and it's a pocket knife, so uh -huh. it's foldable. She slits the back of his foot. Is it a tendon? She is it them? his Achilles tendon? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Oh my god! And That's the dude just drops. Horrible. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. And then we get a quick interrogation with the door. Where's Bill? Who? Stop and then, bam! Me with I, the door. Uh, that is that. It's funny and spine chilling at the same time because you see the door bounce off his head, and he's all, "Please stop hitting me!" <laughs> but no. So uh, she kills this guy. She takes the keys to his car. Well, she remembers who he is. Yeah. Because his name was Buck. And he likes to. Fuck. So, clearly, she gets revenge on that. Did you know where that line came from? Uh, his name is Buck, and he likes to fuck? Yeah, I guess that was another paying homage uh, from, I guess, Toby Hooper's horror movie called Eaten Alive. Robert England says in that movie, the name's Buck, and I'm raring to fuck. Huh? What year was that made? Oh, Toby Hooper, so probably... Nin 1976. I was going to say 70s. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Robert England said it in 76? Yeah, in 76. To go back just a hair's breadth, I have a great respect for when we are revealed to the bride right before she slashes the, the, the tendon because the camera pans down in a rough sort of herky-jerky way to reveal her on the floor. It's like... And there she is. It's like a it's like a, a snake ready to strike. And the musical cue that's going along with it uh -huh. is it just it's so intertwined perfectly. It's it looks yeah. so it's and a, then such a great reveal. And then as soon as she swipes, everything goes silent and he falls. Mm -hmm. Right. So she interrogates him. She bashes his head in, and she takes the sunglasses. Where are the sunglasses from? Uh, the sunglasses come from another movie. What movie is do, 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 it? No, it, um, it's I don't remember the movie, but yeah, True Romance. That's right. That that he also wrote. He wrote that. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's right. They're the replica of the shades that Christian Slater's character and Patricia Arquette's character wear at the end. I also kind of dug in a morbid way the twitch that the guy has on his the floor afterwards. Oh yes, absolutely. As soon as she hits him for that last time, his body's still twitching as mm -hmm. he's slowly dying. Oh, that's so brutal. And then she starts disrobing him. Next thing you know, we, we're, we are in a wheelchair, and, and she's got his car keys pussy waiting. And she rolls right up on it. And then just her expression is like, oh, my God. Of course it's this car. Yeah. Right? She stops abruptly, and we're wondering, what is she looking at? Yeah. When they show this on network TV, have you seen what they changed the pussy wagon to? What? Party wagon. 
Oh, is it party right? away? <laughs> hey, why would you ever fucking watch this on network TV? I don't know. Okay, moving on. But I love the framing. We have Uma, or we have the bride in left frame, and then you have the entire tailgate taking up the rest of the frame. Yeah. It's awesome. So awesome. So awesome. And the music builds. It's like, yes, you know, she's get, she's making her getaway. Things are coming together. And then when the back door opens up, bam, the music stops. And it shows her just absolutely struggling. Agonizing. Agonizingly, yes. And she's got the tears rolling down her face trying to get herself in. Such a great moment for Uma. I remember the first time I saw this scene, I kept thinking, no way would she be able to overcome the, the muscle atrophy and all that with this whole, you know, make your toe wiggle kind of thing? And I thought, no, that's not possible. But what, it was when I think I saw the second movie and what she trained with Pai Mei and all that stuff. Okay, well, now it makes a little more sense. She has a little more control over her body. Oh, see, I never doubted it for one second. I took it as her will and just her uh, intestinal fortitude would and her training uh would would make this happen because i mean why else put this in there i mean other than to see uma's feet right yeah one thing i i don't know why but this round of watching the movie i focused a little more on the feet i can't imagine why john and i kept thinking during this scene where she's trying to get her toe to wiggle did you notice that her toenails were very well manicured and actually had a little bit of nail polish on them well buck not only liked to fuck he liked to do feet as well. That's what I'm wondering. I mean, that must be in a pretty nice hospital that they had taken care of her feet so well. Well, no, I don't know if it was the hospital. I think it was Buck. It is pretty funny how we have the bride on, you know, her head in the back, small left frame, and then her feet take up the entire right frame. Right. Wiggle your big toe. And then as she's doing this, we are told the story of Oren Ishii. And we are now on chapter three, mm-hmm. Professor. Yes. And uh, all of a sudden, the style of the film changes. We are now in a Japanese anime movie. Again, first time I saw it, that really threw me off of why switch to animation. But again, when you look back at it, Quentin did such a great job of paying homage to all these different styles, all these different movies. Another, It's just another reason to love this movie. I never questioned it for one second. As soon as it switched to animation, I remember thinking to myself, fuck yeah. Let's yeah, this fucking's gonna this is gonna be good, right? And it's a heartbreaking story. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the music that goes along with it, it's kind of that old timey western spaghetti western music with the harmonica mm-hmm. and it's just it's so good. And so we are told that Oren as a little girl watched her mother and father get killed by an Okuza boss and his henchmen, and she vows uh, revenge and she becomes uh, one of the world's greatest female assassins during this assassination or during the killing of uh, the parents was there anything that stood out uh, not necessarily but you know I, I knew where the story was going and I got the camera shots that I was expecting to get I knew that I wasn't going to see the mother die I knew the blade was going to come right down through to the floor and land right next to her head and we would get the blood showing up and you don't see anything, but she's looking up at the mattress and it's blood stained, mm-hmm. but then it gets soaked and then the blood starts coming through mm-hmm. and then the tears that are coming down Oren's eyes. It's just so fucking heartbreaking. For me, it was not only that, it was the fact that for Oren, we're just hearing her gasps and whimpers throughout the whole scene. Yeah. 
Oh my God, so devastating. Uh, now, there is an internet rumor or legend or whatever to say. That it's, called, it's called a fan theory. Fan theory that uh, the younger guy that kills Oren's father and then goes and kills them. Or no, it was the Yakuza boss that killed the, uh, the mother. Yeah, the Yakuza boss kills the mother. Did it happen to be a pedophile? Yeah, uh, but his uh, the Okuza boss's right hand, Pretty Ricky, is the one that kills the dad, and the uh, the fan theory is that that's a younger Bill. Yeah, but that has already been disproven. Is that correct? Yes, it's not true. At uh, all. Quentin Tarantino has denied that. In fact, uh, what is the reason why that has been disproven? Uh, because in a longer sequence of that of this animated sequence, Oren actually kills Pretty Ricky, mm-hmm. which I assumed anyway after the. After we saw it. And I kept thinking when I first read that fan theory, why would Oren ever go work for Bill if Bill was the one that killed her father? Yeah, I I didn't buy into it at all anyway because it's a fan theory. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, I yeah, fan theories. And so she becomes the one of the world's best assassins over the next 20 years and then boop, back into the back of the truck. Let's get these piglies wiggling. Well, one of the things with the whole ending of Oren's origin is I thought... You know, I, it even hit me, I think, early on that she just watched her parents, you know, as a, as a young girl die at a, you know, by an assassin, yet she becomes the same thing. And she's probably done the same thing to other families. Yeah. So it's just kind of an irony that she became what she hated. And then it's 13 hours later and she gets out and she gets into the front of the truck and drives off. And I was thinking about the 13 hours in the truck trying to get your feet to wiggle. Yeah, that's rough. I kept thinking during that scene of 13 hours in a hospital garage, you know, trying to get her feet to wiggle. There should have been a lot of police activity when they found Buck's body, probably when they found the other body. No one thought to go, you know, people must have known Buck drives a pussy wagon. And nobody went to check to see if, you know, the car was stolen. But the police, they don't have that angle. They don't know Buck. Right. Well, they would have found Buck's body, and yeah, okay. And witnesses might who know Buck would know what kind of guy he is because he has on his knuckles even Buck and fuck on his knuckles. They, they're going to know a lot about him. I didn't think that the police had anywhere to look out in the in the garage. Yeah, I stopped listening, guys. After witnessing the Akuza murder her parents when she was a child, Oren took vengeance on the Akuza boss and replaced him after training as an elite assassin. The bride travels to Okinawa, Japan to obtain a sword from legendary swordsmith Hattori Hanzo, who has sworn never to forge a sword again. After learning that her target is Bill, his former student, he relents and spends a month crafting his finest sword for her. The bride tracks Oren to the House of Blue Leaves, a Tokyo restaurant, and publicly amputates the arm of her assistant, Sophie Fatale. She defeats the Crazy 88, Oren's squad of elite fighters, and kills her bodyguard, schoolgirl, Gogo Yubari. Oren and the bride duel in the restaurant's Japanese garden. The bride kills Oren by slicing off the top of her head. After torturing Sophie for information about Bill and the other deadly vipers, the bride leaves her alive as a threat before going to kill Vernita. Bill finds Sophie and asks her if the bride knows that her daughter is still alive. Roll credits. 
we get chapter four. The man from Okinawa. The man from Okinawa. And then she walks into his cafe. And I love this sequence. We were talking about it earlier, uh, Sonny Chiba as Hattori Hanzo, just his expressions and and just uh, the way he played this part. It, it was very lovable. Yeah. And, it, and I think it is my second favorite sequence of this film. I love the fact that he was kind of endearing, that he's talking to what he thinks is like an American student. And all the while, the kind of little joke going on that he's talking to the guy in the background about bringing the tea and that whole interaction. I just love that, you know, well, you know, if I've been here so long, I should be a general. If you were a general, I'd still be the emperor. Yes, it's so good. And then my favorite bit of that is when they're arguing with each other because he's telling them to get the sake. And then the uh, the assistant guy looks at Uma and says something in Japanese and it translates to, my head's bald because I shave it on purpose. And then in English, he looks at her and she, he says, do you understand? It's just so good. I, I honestly, I didn't understand that line. Did you understand what he meant by that? Yeah, he's just letting her know that he's not going bald. He shaves his head on purpose. Okay, I just wondered if there was some kind of, you know, it's a little deeper peacock strut. That. It's just a little peacock strut. She's uh. a pretty gal in the place. And, I mean, technically, she did understand because she speaks Japanese. We just mm. don't know that yet, right? So maybe he knew. I don't know. So Master Hanzo and Uma are talking back and forth, and he says, what are you doing in Japan? I'm here to visit somebody. I'm here to see a man. Did you catch that she never ordered, but he still put together a sushi dish for her? Yeah. Well, I think he does that as he was just being nice. Okay. That's what yeah. I think too. Yeah. And she says, you want warm sake? And he's, oh, very good. And so they're talking and she says, uh, uh, oh. Never met him. And uh, does he have a name? And she says, Hattori Hanzo. And then you hear the guy in the background drop the tea. And the blade stops. Yes. And he looks up. And he starts speaking in Japanese, and she starts speaking Japanese, and uh, we were saying this earlier. But she does say this part in English. I, I need to. I have vermin to kill. She says that in English, right? No, I think it's uh, it's in Japanese. Is it? Yeah, I don't remember. But yeah, yeah I have. Well, I guess we'll have to watch I it have, again. I have vermin to kill. Yeah. Oh, those must be big rats. No, he says it in English. Yes. Yeah, you must have big rats. You need Hattori Hanzo steel. But she, but she does say in English, huge. Yeah. And then this bit is very endearing. and Takes her upstairs. And shows her the swords and the song that's going along with it. You can tell that she really appreciates it. And she's actually very honored to be there. And she does all of this with just her reverence and her body language. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but like, especially this time looking at it in, I think Kill Bill 2, they, they comment to how a, you know, Hattori Hanzo swords, you know, worth over a million dollars. And you see, he's got like 20 or 30 of them just on the wall. Yeah. He keeps them for sentimental values. And just crazy. It's the worth of what all of his swords are. Yeah. I love the camera shot that we get behind, like where the wall's taken away and we're looking through the swords at the bride as she's slowly walking along, admiring them. And mm -hmm. she goes to grab one and she stops. I love that she asked permission. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he says, you may. And then she starts doing and, the sword and thing. And then he, he recommends a different one for her. Right. Nope. Second one down. And she pulls it out. You see her eyes along the blade. Yeah. I guess the cutting the baseball in half, that was really, that wasn't CGI. That was, they really did cut a, an actual baseball in half. Spoiler alert, boys. There is no CGI in this film. No. None. 
Everything is practical. I didn't think there was. They yeah. had a so yeah, that makes sense that they sliced a fucking baseball. In it half. was Uma's you know stunt double, but still they managed to make that work. Do you know who Uma's stunt double is? Zoe, Zoe Bell. And Zoe Bell has probably been in all of Quentin's movies. She even gets a acting role in Death Proof. I really appreciated you know when he kind of mentions to her that I only brought you up here to show you these swords. And so you can understand, you know, my plight of, I do not make weapons of death anymore, that whole thing. And she explains, well, this is who my vermin is. This is who I'm going after. And I love how she doesn't say the name, but he goes up and he writes it on the window. She name drops him without name dropping. Yeah. And, and, and it's this line that really seals it. Um, and the music's so good in yeah. this right here. And, I love the music here. And you have a very big responsibility for this is what she's saying and that's what triggers a tory like oh fuck it's bill right and then the music you're absolutely right professor i read something i don't know if it was an actual from an interview or if it's just basically a fan theory but the story is supposedly that bill came to hattori as an admirer and got trained by him in some sword work some sword play and asked him to make some swords and that's the swords he had given to the the deadly vipers and all the deaths caused by the deadly vipers using the swords is what weighed down on hattori hanzo oh i'm sure probably but he was a former student and when i first saw this film i thought oh he's the one that trains bill but not necessarily we mm-hmm. find that out later on yeah. and even in you know what? I'm not going to say that because we'll, if and when we ever talk about volume two, mm-hmm. we'll get into that part. Mm-hmm. So, and now it's one month later because it took Hattori one month to finish the sword. I, I love the one month later when we see them come all in the white. The ceremony of the sword giving. And the assistant, who was very snarky, very sarcastic. Do you notice he was so reverent at yeah, that point? Yeah. I mean, he was fully the, the assistant. I mean, he yeah. was, mm-hmm. might have even been his husband. Who knows? With Quentin Tarantino. But my favorite line in this whole thing is, uh, if you should encounter God on your journeys, this sword would cut him mm-hmm. and he would bleed. So uh, I thought that, and, and he says, without no ego in this uh, in this comment, this is probably the finest sword I've ever crafted. And it fucking is. Mm-hmm. It fucking is. The way that it just tears through other swords and everything, everything it cuts. Everything. Yeah. yeah. Chapter 5, Showdown at House of Blues. And this is uh, easily my favorite part of the entire movie, from here until the very end. Why wouldn't it be? Exactly, exactly, because it's the most action-packed. Um, yeah, it's such a good scene. And so, Orinishi, she's, she's talking about where she's been, and we, get, and we get to meet Sophie. Her best friend. Mm-hmm. And we get to see that Sophie was there when the bride was attacked, but Sophie didn't and then, take an active role. But And then we get... Introduced to Gogo Yabari. What do you think of Gogo's or like a little bit of origin story? Oh, that she's just fucking a lunatic? Yeah, she's yeah, just crazy. I buy it. And then we meet General Johnny Moe. And then finally we get the disgruntled the, employee. I like how she introduces Johnny Moe as the guy in the Kato mask. Yeah. And uh, Boss Tanaka. Yep. And what Boss Tanaka thinks is. Uh, and then the just the musical cues every time. She's introducing people. And so this is the night that uh, Oren takes control of the Yakuza. And then um, we cut to the bride in Japan on the bike. Well, don't you want to talk about the beheading? 
That she walks, that she just rocks over and cuts off to knock his head. I, I so l- quickly on a table. I, I love the, the 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 scurry feet bit, and then just you know, no hesitation. Did you like how the weapon was so sharp that it cut through it? And there was no blood at first, and it took like one or two seconds before the blood started spurting out. Oh, I loved it. I loved all the blood spurting in this film. And I also love like this time too. I focused on the people around the guy next to him. Just freaks out. The one with the fan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking good. Good. Uh, do you notice that Tanaka's eyes are still looking up as as if he was looking up at her when he, she mm. decapitated him? Mm-hmm. Pretty sure the eye sockets would have relaxed by then, but nice little touch. And then one ticket to Tokyo, please. Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, did you notice that all of the airlines have holders for the katana swords? Yeah, what's up with that? How in the world <laughs> could you have that in the airplane? That was my thought. Is this is obviously pre nine eleven because I don't think she would have been able to take a katana on a plane like that. Two thousand three? No, uh, Quentin just has uh, his own universe. Mm. He's just living in his own world. I mean, he rewrites history too. So, yeah. I wonder why the skies were so red. Uh, Sunset. I don't know. Sunset. Maybe the time of day they're flying. Or would it would it be an allusion? Alluding to you know the the rising sun of the Japanese flag, ah, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. perhaps. Uh, I was more curious on why the airplane looked like a spaceship out of Flash Gordon. Yeah, it. it, it, it. Well, now you've got me excited. <laughs> so she, she is now in her uh, Bruce Lee yellow outfit, and she is on the motorcycle. Yes, and this is where the song kicks in. And then, like you were saying, Professor, as the beat is kicking in, they're all walking down the corridor, Oren and her gang. Can we go to the, I, I really appreciated the transition that we had getting to their destinations because we have this music that is building and the uh, we go back and forth between Oren's car and, and the bride on her motorcycle. And Oren, she is frame left, moving towards right. And the bride is frame right, moving towards left. And we hear the escalating sound of the RPMs of the vehicles getting higher and higher. And so they are, they are colliding. They're on, it's like they're on a collision course towards each other as they are moving to the destination of the restaurant. And I thought that that was really stylishly cool. So they're at the restaurant. And is this where we get the single shot all the way through the restaurant? Yeah. When um, Sophie goes down to go to the restroom we follow Sophie uh, as she makes her way down, and then we move, and the camera follows along, and we even get the over-the-top shot that we all like so much, and we see that Sophie goes to the restroom, and Uma and the bride's in there, and that's when we hear the ringtone, and we immediately get that sound again, and uh, it shows us that Sophie's taking the phone call while the bride is getting killed, and now... Uh, she knows. I think this is where the bride figures. This is how I'm going to get to Oren. Yeah, and also we are we understand why there is a grudge for having her going for Sophie in the first place. Right, right. During this flashback bit. Right, and then so they follow. Uh, so the the proprietors of the bar are up in the Oren room. And they're having a conversation, and they refer to as the dude as Charlie Brown. And the guy's like, I hate these fucking people because they always make demands that we can't fulfill. And, you know, the gang is like, we want pepperoni pizzas. And they're like, ah. I guess the long take scene 
took six hours to rehearse and was shot in 17 takes. Uh, the Steadicam operator uh, is rumored to have passed out when they finally finished it. I believe it. I believe it. Because it starts on the proprietors, follows them up to the O'Ren room, picks up on Sophie, and follows Sophie into the fucking bathroom. That's that's the long take, and uh, Tarantino does that. He loves to move the camera, and I gotta say, he's pretty fucking good at it. You mm. know what I mean? So that's what that's one of the things I really remembered about this film uh, a lot is the shots. So the five, six, seven, eights that are playing—that's the band that's playing. Yeah. So the way that Quentin found these people, he is on his way to the airport, and he has some downtime, and he's in a—I think it's a record store. Yep. And there's music playing, and he's like. God, this is just like fucking awesome. And he asked the guy behind the counter, who is this? And that's a five, six, seven, eight. Oh, I'm never going to remember this. And so he's like, is this, so it's a CD? Uh, yeah. And so he begs the guy, begs the guy for the CD. And I guess he ends up buying the CD from him. So that way he would have it stuck and he wouldn't forget. Yeah. And he would know who the band is and what it is that he likes about their sound. So that way he was able to pull that and put them into his movie. Yeah, and it was great. It definitely fit the scene. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Oren and her cronies are having a good old time, and then we hear the bride's voice. Oh, no, wait. First, we, sorry. We, we get the dart. Yes, yes. So the bride is listening to what's going on outside, and Oren throws that dart. Showing her senses are pretty attuned. Spidey absolutely, senses. Absolutely, she sends. And she, I love it how she just says, go, go. And then go, go goes outside and looks. Left. And we're, Right, left. I'm right. impressed the bride got up so high. And, and then the, we pan and the, up. And, and the camera swivels up. It's like, oh, fucking A. And there she is just hanging on. You can tell that she's shaking and, and holding on for dear life. Fucking awesome. Such a great shot. Oren and them are in the room, and then we hear the bride's voice. Oren Ishii, we have unfinished business. And uh, Oren knows immediately who it is. Right. And so uh, last from the past, they open the door. Everyone comes running out and she's uh, the last to come out. Yeah. And she even says Beatrix because the voice goes. Blue, blue, blue. And uh, what you think of how she kind of has Sophie as a hostage at this point and immediately cuts off her arm, just hacks it off. And that blood spray as she's rolling around is just yeah. crazy. It's kind of funny because the arm goes off. The fire hydrant of blood goes out. Everybody for just a moment, and then all of a sudden, everybody decides to run right past the woman that did the hacking. Well, they knew that they were probably okay because her gaze was, never leaves. Was, was up on the balcony. That's right. Never leaves upstairs. Uh -huh. So, And this starts just an absolute phenomenal scene. I like how was it the first? she sends the first guy down, and he's dispatched immediately yep. then we get the guy with the fancy hair little hairdo comes down with another person he's three guys yeah three guys go dispatched down after that. super quick and and then she goes do you have any other subordinates for me to kill and then we get the go-go -go fight yeah do you guys think of the go-go fight i loved go how go, go came out and did that little laugh yeah so they have it out oh. and in the right even says i implore to you or i'm begging you don't do this did i you, don't want to kill you did you hear about the uh the issue with the big go-go fight scene. The big issue? Well, the accident that happened. What was the accident that happened? Go-go had that metal ball or whatever that she was kicking around doing the stunts with. Apparently, uh, Quentin Tarantino got hit in the head by it. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. That didn't surprise me. That was a pretty menacing-looking fucking ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called a meteor hammer. Yes. 
And right before the fight starts, and she gets to the bottom of the stairs. I, I love that shot when the, when the uh, the ball hits the floor, and then you have the bride with her raised eyebrows. Mm. <laughs> that reaction, because she says, uh, "Let's not do this, or we don't have to do this." And bunk. I, I, I guess we do. <laughs> yeah. And then and then right after this shot, we have a great frame up with Uma on the left in her yellow jumpsuit, and the. Uh, the shoji screens behind her are uh, sort of an orange as well, sort of matching somewhat, you know, to her. In frame right, you have Gogu, and she is uh, in her little school uniform, and she has the green-blue uh, plaid skirt, which is also mimicked by the uh, shoji behind her because they are blue of a bluish hue, and they also have little squares as well, which matches her skirt. Beautiful framing. Absolutely. This whole thing was framed beautifully, right? And so she figu- uh, she finishes off Gogo. Well, what would you think of that whole fight sequence? I thought it was brilliant. Um, she was badass with that thing. And But I also thought it can't go on for too long, right? Because we still got a whole lot of other people to go through. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe I thought it would have taken longer or... Um, it should have been more, but if you think about it, Gogo is really only 17 and the bride's the bride. One thing that I appreciate about this scene was we just witnessed the bride take out what eight or nine people super quick. This kind of showed that she's not perfect. She's not invulnerable. Gogo was kicking her ass a little bit here and there. You know, she cut her a few times. She smacked her in the chest, knocked her down, got the chain around her neck, all those kind of things. So we saw a little bit of vulnerability in the bride. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Nice touch when Gogu fell down and she still had the uh, table leg in her head. Uh, nice that, little touches. That thing, I, I kind of looked for a little bit of wobble in it. When she fell down with the, the leg in her head, that thing did not move. It looked solid. So yeah. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. Uh, the special effects guys that did this was K&B uh, effects, and they're the ones that do The Walking Dead, uh, Nicotero, and Berger. They started that FX company, and they're fucking huge. Mm-hmm. So they did a great job because, again, all of this is practical. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hear the revving of all the motorcycles right after this. Is that what I think it is? You didn't really think, think it was, was going to be, be that easy. easy. Did you? For a moment. Well, you know, for a second, I kind of did. That's such a great line. Silly rabbit. Tricks, Tricks are, are for, for kids. kids. And then they all show up. And, you know. Fucking awesome overhead shot with the bride on that island of light of the square floor. Yes. And then you have the blackness of those 30 Yakuza's slowly creeping in around her, making the circle tighter and smaller. Yeah, so Johnny Lou jumps in and gives a hi-ya, and then we zoom out, and and then the musical cue hits, and then everyone rushes in. Yeah. Speaking of overheads, when the bride first walked in and we had an overhead, or basically looking from underneath, did you see what was written on the bottom of her shoes? Fuck you. I thought that was kind of clever. They start the fight, and you know it's going to be a fucking bloodbath because the bride's just taking out people left and right. Taking out limbs left and right. And then she, uh, I really love this bit where she plucks the dude's eye out. That's when it goes black and white. And then now you can show as much blood as you want because it's in black and white. That was the whole, I guess. That's the whole reason why to get uh, not the an, sensors. Yeah, not an X rating or an NC-17 rating. He turned it black and white. In the 250-minute version of this film, uh, that sequence is in color. Did you feel at all that this was maybe foreshadowing for Ellie Driver for the second movie of how she got her eye plucked out? 
Mm-mm. No. Because it kind of seemed the way she plucked out was the same way that Pai Mei plucked out Ellie's eye. I don't know if it's foreshadowing. And then I think it's more of a callback. And then how uh, the bride Beatrix does to Ellie's other eye. Yeah. I think I've I remember hearing someplace that Quentin was okay with it going black and white because it's sort of a callback to the uh, kung fu movies that he grew up with. Sure. Besides going in black and white, uh, eventually we do get color back, but I also liked when they went to the dark scene with kind of light in the background. Yeah, when they go upstairs. Yeah, when they go upstairs. I thought that sequence as well was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, and then she dispatches of all those people, except for the young kid, spanks him, tells him to go home to his mother, which is a callback to Kiyosawa. Well, that wasn't originally planned. Originally planned, she was supposed to kill all of them and behead the last guy. But when Quentin saw that actor, he thought he looked too young, too cute for uh, the bride to kill and thought that would make the bride look kind of bad if she killed this young, cute kid. So that's why came up with the, he came up with the idea of spanking him and sending him home. Yeah. Right before this, we have the bride where it shows her blinking and it blinks into color and it's the shot of the wife shutting off the power and then you get this blue background and these black silhouettes fighting these eight guys taking on the bride very very stylish so pretty so pretty yeah and then we have one more general to take care of before we can get to oren and that's johnny lou and so you knew this fight was coming mm-hmm. uh, and you knew to. it'd be a good one too yeah oh yeah of course of course so the bride manages to dispatch of him. I wonder if he was actually killed or was he just fell in the water and knocked out? No, I think he's dead. You think so? I think they're all dead. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, she yells to the group. Uh, she gives some parting advice to the a- troops. Any of you still alive? Leave with your lives. But the limbs, your limbs belong to me. And you just, and then the wide shot of everyone laying on the ground and going, ah. And the blood spurting everywhere. It's except, so good. Except you, Sophie. You stay right there. At some point, and I'm not exactly sure where, I didn't catch it in this viewing, one of the bodies on the floor wearing a mask is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that's what they say. They say he's in that scene somewhere. All right, so when the crazy 88s show up until that speech, how much time has passed? Seven, six minutes? About eight minutes. About eight minutes. Eight minutes of carnage. And I got to say that the amount of blood that we see throughout this, it was certainly uh, not reserved. It was very flamboyant. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't turned off by it. No, no. It, it kept moving along. and um, Because there's definitely some fire hose moments that we see with some of these kills. And I don't know why. Yeah, it's bloody. It's violent. But I... I just didn't necessarily think it was too much. Maybe it's because I was already accustomed to Quentin. And I think a lot of it maybe is because it was in black and white. Your eyes don't register as fast or whatever. Because when she slices the body in half yeah, in color, I bet you that has a different effect yeah. on you. Another scene that stood out to me, I think, was the breakdance fighting where she gets down on the ground and spins around and starts taking out all their legs. Yeah, she's got the two blades in her hands and just... Uh, Whacking uh, the legs, the feet off. Yeah, uh, like a weed whacker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good stuff. Good stuff. And so now she is going to fight Oren. And she heads outside into the snow. And Oren immediately says, your instrument is impressive. Where'd you get it? And she says, the bride says, a Tori Hanzo. And... Uh, 
She doesn't know. No. Oh, Ren is like, bullshit. Yeah, she doesn't know. Liar. She believes that. Yeah. And she shows her the lion on the sword, and they duel. And, and Oren says, uh, too bad you're not at full strength. I doubt you'll even last five minutes. Yeah, which I guess the whole entire fight scene takes five minutes, 30 seconds. Four minutes and 48 seconds. Oh, okay. I read yeah. five minutes, 30. What I dug uh, throughout this this fight was the sound of the water fountain and, and, and the... Yeah, the, the the fountain uh wood splunking. Yes. It worked. Yeah. For me it was the music that played beforehand that uh, just had that kind of clicking noises and the build up and then when it went silent and had that whole thing it's kind of when Oren started taking her a little bit seriously. Yeah. Cuz uh Oren slices her, gets a, gets a On good shot back. in, gets a good shot in and says Cross her back. Yeah, says silly little white Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords, right? Kind of talking shit. And now you're going to die like a samurai. Right. And mm-hmm. so they go at it again, another yeah. another cross uh, attack move, but this time the bride gets the best of her. And draws blood. And uh, Oren's like, for that comment earlier, I'm sorry, are you ready? And the bride's all, let's go. Well, I like how she says, I apologize. And then the bride says, I accept. Yeah, for that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they go, they go at each other one more time, cling, clong, cling, 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 and then up, oh, there goes Oren's head. What her scalp? Her scalp. scalp. What do you think of it flipping up in the air and all at, that? At first, I when I first watched it, I remember thinking, "Did I just see what I think I saw?" You know? Yeah, it was wild. And then when we pan down and Oren's there with no scalp, and you can see her brain, brain. Mm-hmm. and she's like, "That really was an Hortori Hanzo sword." <laughs> I. I don't know why, but I honestly thought if the sword was so sharp to cut through the scalp, why didn't it cut through the hair too? Uh, the way she, the way she used just the angle. I guess the original plan was uh, the bride was supposed to decapitate Oren and kill her right there and then. But then Quentin said, but then we wouldn't have gotten the reply about the you know, Hattori Hanzo sword uh, and that was needed in the movie. So they changed it. So the bride kills Oren. And now she's going to take Sophie to the hospital, but she interrogates her first. And I love how she just is like, but I'm going to ask you questions and every question you don't give me answers. I'm going to cut something off. And I promise you, they will be things that you miss. And then uh, Sophie screams. And the, when she's talking, she's got the, she's got the motorcycle helmet on with the visor down and so she is faceless, and her yellow suit and yellow helmet are now red because of the taillights, which means this is death. You are at death's door. This is, you are looking at death. Sure, sure. Wonderful. And, you know, the camera is skewed at an angle because, you know, we're looking from Sophie's perspective. Yes, yeah, a little bit of a Dutch angle. And uh... I first thought that when she said, give me that other arm that she had cut off her other arm. But when she's rolling down the hill, you can see the only thing she's missing is the one arm. Yeah. So she takes uh, Sophie out of the trunk and throws her down the hill. But in the meantime, we're also getting some voiceover. As I have said before, I've allowed you to keep your wicked life for two reasons. And And Sophie is telling Bill this. Mm -hmm. And the second reason is that you can tell him in person everything that happened here tonight. I want him to know. I want him to know that I want him to know. I want him to know. And I want them to know that they will all be as dead as O-Ren. And then we cut to the plane. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. They're flying. We hear uh, Hattori Hanzo's uh, voiceover about revenge. And she creates her list. And she starts her list. And everybody on the plane has katana sword holders. And then we cut to Sophie again. And Bill says, I got one more question for you. Does she know? Is she aware? Is she aware that her daughter is still alive? Cut to black and a movie. Fucking fantastic. Just incredible how we have so little of Bill, but so much of Bill is a presence in the movie. We have his voice and we have his hands and that's it. And they're so menacing. Totally menacing. He, he does, Quentin does such a good job of making Bill menacing throughout this whole thing. So be, we talked about blood a little bit earlier. Do you know how much blood was used between both movies? 70 or 700 gallons. 250 gallons. I was closest. I read 60 gallons. I read 250 gallons. 250 gallons. I'll go with that. I believe that. Speaking of blood, I haven't seen this much blood since the Battle of Pelennor Fields, where the armies of Gondor and Rohan faced off against the massive armies of Mordor. Oh, for fuck's sakes. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we're currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made. So for Kill Bill Volume 1, Frodo is the bride. Both characters are on a journey to right a wrong. Both characters face insurmountable obstacles and must rely on their own strength and help from others to succeed. I'd say the closest character to Sam would be Hattori Hanzo. Both characters are loyal to the protagonist and provide crucial assistance and guidance throughout her journey. Gandalf, well, we don't see him yet. He's really in the second movie, but Pai Mei was the closest thing to me for Gandalf. He was the wise and powerful mentor of the bride. Both are mysterious, enigmatic characters with depth of knowledge and experience that are beyond most mortals. And like Gandalf, Pai Mei is not easily swayed by emotions or personal attachments and is willing to make difficult decisions for the greater good. The greater good. My pick for Legolas? Legolas. Legolas. My pick for Legolas may seem a bit odd, but I'm going to go with Gogo Yabari. While she wasn't actually a part of the fellowship, like Legolas, Legolas, Legolas. like Legolas, she is a skilled, deadly fighter with incredible speed and agility. She is also a mysterious character with a quiet intensity that makes her even more dangerous. She is fiercely loyal to her master, Oren, just like Legolas is to Aragorn. The best correlation for Theoden would be to look at the character who started out as a traumatized and weakened individual and rose to take the throne from Rohan. The closest character to that is Oren. She started as a little girl witnessing the murder of her father and rose to become the leader of the Kuza. For Sauron, the best analogy would be Bill himself. Well, Bill doesn't have the same level of power and ambition that Sauron does. He is menacing and a mysterious figure who controls a network of deadly assassins. Like Sauron, Bill's actions 
drive the plot of the movie. So what is the precious, what is the one ring? In Kill Bill Volume 1, the ring is represented by the Hattori Hanzo sword. Both are powerful and coveted objects that drive the plot and motivate the characters to pursue them. Like the one ring, the Hattori Hanzo sword is a symbol of power and represents the quest for revenge. Both objects have significant impact on the characters who seek them, and they ultimately serve as a means of achieving their goals. Both have a certain mystique and history surrounding them, making them integral to the main character's journey. And there you have it, my comparison between Kill Bill Volume 1 and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. I'm going to say that's kind of challenging for you, right? Because we have one protagonist. Two if you count Hattori. I don't. I count him as a... uh, uh, um, A neutral? No, I count him as a companion, right? He's not necessarily the protagonist. He's he's on her side. He's helping her. He's on the right side, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas everyone else is on the opposite. That's why I gave him Sam. Sure, and that's fine. Uh, I guess what I would have done maybe is uh, a different twist on it would be it would have been uh the the deadly vipers right that's your fellowship that's your evil fellowship right so maybe reverse a little bit oh that's good either way i I think you you had a a tough challenge Mm -hmm. uh this week i think bill as sauron and sauron actually he could have been both well actually ellie could have been uh sauron yes and bill the other one sauron Kate Tolkien, why are we giving both bad guys names with S's? Well, you dick. It would have been reverse. Bill would have been Sauron as the top boss. Ellie would have been Saruman, the white. Yeah, that's where I was there, going with yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah, where I was going with yeah. it. Um, so with all that going to be said, um, you know, valiant effort. So uh, the ring part, though, with the sword. Yeah, no, I, I that was a good correlation. I, I like that one, too. I'm going to go ahead and give you a solid C on this one. That's bud. where I'm at, too. C. This was a tough one. You don't want to say anything clever? <laughs> when do I ever say anything and clever? That was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, you ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to cut into it. All right. Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody says, hey, you want to watch Kill Bill Volume 1? Fuck yeah, I do. It is just a cinematic masterpiece. A one-fuck movie is a movie where you see it, and it's a one-and-done thing. What the fuck was that? And you really have no desire to see it again. You know, you had a curiosity, you watched it, and then you're done with it. Never going to watch it again. And what's a zero? A zero-fuck movie is you watch it, and you think, oh, for shit's sake, what the hell was that? Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, which one of you two want to go first? I kind of feel like you're supposed to go first since this was your pick. Oh, is that what we're doing? Well, that's the trend that we have. That's that's how it's been happening the last several movies, but it doesn't have to be. Fine, I'll go first. No, I was no. just asking you no, a fucking question, and when I ask you a fucking so, question, Kill all Bill I need to do is for you to fucking answer. It's a fucking yes or no, and it's a yes or no. You go first. Like I said earlier on the pod, I saw this on a bootleg. Sorry, QT. I actually did eventually go 
and give you my money and pay to see this. But when I first saw it, it was on a bootleg and I watched it back to back. That's how much I liked it. And um, to this day, Kill Bill is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. Uh, I can confidently say it's in the top three. And uh, anytime I go back to Kill Bill, it's always fun. The soundtrack, the casting, the writing, the directing, the shots, all of it. And I believe outside of Death Proof, this is the shortest Quentin Tarantino movie coming in at an hour and 50 some odd minutes. Yeah, it's an hour 50. So uh, <laughs> obviously Don appreciates that. Uh, but overall, it's just a fantastic, fun ride. I love Uma. I love everything about this film. I'm giving Kill Bill Volume 1 4.75 fucks. Listen to you. All right, fuckers. Who wants to go next? Well, apparently, I'm going to go next because you wouldn't let me go first. Kill Bill Volume 1. This movie just knocked my pants off. Top knocked my socks off, knocked my shoes off. I was practically naked knocking all of my clothes off. This movie was so fun to watch the first time around. And watching it this time around, it hasn't disappointed at all. I feel like it has lost none of its shine. It It is such a, a delightful watch. And Quentin is so masterful in his directing style. And the music accompanies it so beautifully. Uma perfectly cast in just this ray of sunlight and brightness she just shines like like nothing else and i gotta say that you know do i like her more in this or pulp fiction i don't know man i still gotta I, pulp fiction is still my top one you know but um this is probably right behind it and it is such a rich watch and all of the scenes are so enjoyable and the the cadence and the tempo that this movie, it moves, and I really appreciate the supporting cast. They are so good, and the writing is so smart and crisp, and the action is so vivid, and I love how this movie just kind of sort of ends where it does with Bill's hands. It's like, oh, I can't wait to see what's next. This is such a good watch. I think that this movie, for me, I'm with you, Don, 4.75 fucks. 4.75 fucks from the professor. All right, Johnny boy. You're up there, home dog. My turn? Your turn, buddy. Okay. There once was a gal named the bride. Her enemies ran but couldn't hide. Their swords did she slay in a stylish display. Kill Bill Volume 1 is a hell of a ride. Five fucks from me. Five fucks from the comic book guy, which means it is cinematic gold. With 4.75 fucks from me, 4.75 fucks from the professor, and five perfect fucks from the comic book guy, that gives Kill Bill an average of 4.8 fucks, and now places it in the number two spot with one other film. Anybody? The Any? Dark Knight. No. The Crow? No. Raiders of the Lost Ark. No. Ghostbusters. I was going to guess Flash Gordon next. Uh, <laughs> it puts it in the second spot with tied with Ghostbusters. Uh, slightly better than Die Hard, Shawshank, and Elf. And slightly worse than Raiders, Dark Knight, and Jaws. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which film we are going to be reviewing next, please uh, check out our website 
Speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can always find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post all of our podcasts, show notes, movie trivia, and we even have quizzes up there. There's also a section of our site where you can submit movies that we will put in the hat and hopefully review soon. You can find us at all of social media and any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Kite tirate arigato. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! You read the first part. Try reading it, smiling at the same time. I want you smiling okay. when you read it. Yeah. I think your voice also cracked at one point in the beginning. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's I unacceptable. Do. I know. I'm sorry, guys. Jesus, can I have a... I don't mind doing it again. With a smile. <clears throat> and go. It's called action, bud. kind of felt good. Kind of felt good. You know, I'm going to go back and listen to all three of those, and I'm going to hate every single one of them. But you could take pieces from each one. Oh, can I? Can I, boss? Yeah. Some of these aren't going to be no-brainers. Well, I was I was thinking. That can't be the question, that right? That can't be the question. <laughs> and I was thinking, maybe he's talking about the general, General Mo, Johnny Moe. Yeah, maybe he's trying to lead because, us somewhere. But who, Because, yeah. Who played the bride? Schoolgirl. Schoolgirl. Schoolgirl, Gogo Yubari. I totally forgot my fucking notebook upstairs. You want to go get it? Because I want to warm up my coffee. Well, no, just arigato. And then people, I think, will recognize that enough. It's the thanks for listening. And they will clue in that I'm saying in Japanese, thanks for listening. You know what I mean? Kite kurete arigato. Kite arigato. Spelled out. Kite kurete arigato. Is he putting a T in the first word? That was closer. Yeah, I'm probably just going to splice it all together. One more time. So, do you have a porn name? Phil Bill? No. Yeah. We're missing an opportunity here for a uh, call out. Are we? Oh, yeah. So, you obviously have one. Oh, I have one. Well, what the fuck are you waiting for? Come on, it's Thrill Jill Volume 1. Ooh. That's good. That's good. Why are you shaking your head? That's good. And that one goes out to you, Jill. No disrespect, Ronnie. I'm just saying the three of us will thrill Jill. (laughs) 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 Poor Ken. (laughs) Ken, do you have one? No. Okay. Just checking. (laughs) He's still shocked about what I said. (laughs) All right. Fuck off. Good night.